Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Alex, whose hope of joining the army was dashed after a shock diagnosis. The only memory I have from that day and then that whole period of, I guess, four days was talking to the anaesthetist. And he, he goes to me, he's like, what's this on your wrist? And I was like, oh, you can cut that off. And he was like, oh, what is it? And I, saw, I told him, that's a wishband, and they break when all your wishes come true. And at that point, he looked at me and I said, the only wish I have is to be fixed and to be able to get on with my life. And um, sorry, I'm getting a bit... <laughs> I remember him looking at me and you could see he was welling up and I was welling up and the chief anaesthetist was welling up and everyone in the room was all looking at each other like, why are we all welling up? From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Bill Snadden. And on the ticker tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, Alex tells me about his physical challenges and the emotional strain as he recovers from a major heart operation. So, Alex, can you tell me about that day when you were diagnosed with your heart condition? Uh, yeah, Bill. Um, it was November 2019. I uh, was in the process of joining the army and it had been going on for about a year because I'd previously been knocked back due to having broken my hand. So it was basically 12 months, come back, we'll see you again. And I've sat there in the waiting room, I saw a bit of breeze, I'm, I'm as fit as a fiddle, there's nothing to worry about whatsoever. Passed all the initial tests, got called into the room for the examination, passed everything, and then he uh, looked at my medical records and saw that as a baby I had a, um, um, an asymptomatic heart murmur. I was like, yeah, that's nothing, it's nothing, and there's nothing wrong with me. He has a listen to my chest, he goes in again, he listens again. And, he, and he, I remember him standing up and like looking at me. And I was like looking back at him like, what, what, why, what, what's going on? And he was like, I'm going to send you for some more scans. Nah, sort of in the back of my mind, I was like, what's going on here? Like, what's this? And we're going to sitting back in the waiting room, being sat there and being called, called forward again, going for these scans. And had a uh, echocardiogram. And uh, she, um, she looks at me again. And she's like, she goes back in 40 minutes. This scan went on for. And I was like, there's something, there's something wrong here. Why is no one saying anything to me? Yeah, about an hour and a half went by and they called me in for the, the GP called me in again. And he, he looks at me and he goes, I'm going to have to say no this time round. No and to I joining thought, the army. No to joining the army again, yeah. Mm. And I looked at him and I was like, what do you mean no? My hand's fine. And he looks at me and he's like, yeah, no, it's not your, it's not your thumb, it's your heart. I was like, what do you mean it's my heart? And he explained all this bicuspid stuff to me and I didn't have a clue what he was going on about. All, and all I could think about at the time was, I can't join the army. Mm. Telling me no again. And he's told you you've been diagnosed with something called bicuspid aortic valve disease. Is that what he thinks at that yeah, stage? Yeah, so he, at this, he wasn't a heart specialist. And he said, I think you've got bicuspid aortic valve disease, so BCVD. Mm. Yeah, so the valve itself had become... To like stiffen up and when it starts doing that it's it basically affects the flow so blood is allowed to both be expelled through the valve but also because of the it's an inability to close up fully blood also came back through the valve which causes the ascending aorta to widen and or dilate as they to use the technical term and that was ultimately the bit that was gonna in essence fail and cause me some some upset i guess mm. And um, I was like, I just, just broke down. 
didn't know what to do. I remember he called, I got, I asked him to call my dad. My dad was like, dad instantly saw I wasn't in a good way and he was like, what's wrong, what's wrong? And I remember saying, just the, the, speak to the GP, he'll explain, I don't really know what's going on. And uh, yeah, about another hour went by and this, what was supposed to be a 40 minute quick appointment turned into the entire day. And I was there for like six hours. And at the end of it, I got handed this piece of paper and it essentially said no. And that was the second and final time that I'd been told no by the army. And yeah, everything sort of felt like it was falling apart around me, I guess. Hmm. So the first time you try and join the army, you can't because of your broken thumb. Broken broken, thumb, yeah. And then you go back a year later and they discover you've got this heart condition. Yeah, that I've had my entire life. No one knew about. My parents didn't have a clue. I didn't have a clue. I guess the NHS and the doctors didn't even know. Yeah. And why, Alex, did you want to join the army? I don't know. I guess it's something that I've always looked at. I always looked at doing. My father, my father was in the forces. Um, it's something I grew up around, and I guess something I wanted to give have a good go at. And becoming an officer just seemed like like the ideal career path for me. I guess. Was there something in it that you saw as, as meaningful and, and giving back to society as well? Yeah, definitely. It was a it was a way of doing my bit and I always saw I watched all the programmes on TV and saw these like young, impressionable private soldiers coming from all sorts of different areas and walks of life. And then you always hear of the officers coming from like being from like Eton and all these fancy colleges and going to uni and I always thought I didn't go from I didn't come from there. I went to uni. Officer sort of role sounded like the ideal way for me to make a difference and, yeah, give back, I guess. Mm-hmm. And you were 23, almost 24 that day in November yeah. 2019 uh, at the yeah. Army Medical when they said no. Um, what were you doing beforehand? So I was a student before everything changed, I guess. I studied sports and exercise science and then I studied a postgraduate degree in sports rehab. And about halfway through that, I sustained the, the hand injury. And everything just sort of, it, almost like it became clear that this wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. And that initial calling for the, the military that I'd had four years prior to all this was, was what I wanted to do. It was that I'd finally had this realisation that, so stop umming and ahhing about it and go out and do exactly what you want to do. Do it for you. Go and join the army because that's ultimately what I wanted to do. And what's going through your mind there that day when you're leaving the Army Medical? Sheer just disappointment and like, I guess I I looked at myself as like not good enough. Like I didn't, I didn't, I felt like all my purpose was gone. Like I had no, I didn't know what I was going to do because that was the only thing I thought about doing. So yeah, I guess I've lost all purpose and I just felt like, just empty and just yeah mm. how how low did you get if i may ask well the lowest i've ever got um i remember leaving the leaving the medical center and just 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 getting upset crying being angry confused not really knowing why you know that sense of like why me what have i done to to have all of this taken off me and then I think that weekend, me and, me and my girlfriend, we went away for that weekend and it was supposed to be this big celebration of a 
finally passed this medical and we went to we went to watch the rugby i think it was fiji england we went to watch and the whole time there was just this like cloud looming over me like i just couldn't couldn't shake this feeling of just just sad and then i just remember getting in the car every every day after work and just just crying and not being able to explain why and just just yeah the lowest 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 i've ever ever been and was there anything that helped during this time when you were really low so uh, yeah there's um I, I was reading lots of books and just trying to work out exactly um why i was feeling how i was feeling but mainly mainly to sort of look at like resilience and building yourself up and knowing that the world isn't against you it's just with the card two cards you've been dealt and that it's just it's not for a specific reason and there was one book i read it was called the um the art of resilience by a by an adventurer called uh, Ross Edgeley, mm. and I just remember reading about him and about stoicism and just taking every day as it comes and yeah, sort of understanding that yeah, like like I said, it's not it's not spe- not specific to me. It is something that happens to all of us. There was this specific bit about a um a naval officer. I think his name was something along like Stockdale. I think it was, mm. and he goes into the uh, he was captured in Vietnam. And he goes on to talk about um, how he saw fellow people that had been captured go on and like hope that they would be uh, out by Christmas, and they were putting time frames on things. And it very much sort of like lined up with what I was going through. Time frame, times windows get put on things, and those windows would get missed. And he would say that those people would go on to to fall away at the wayside and not quite cope with it as well as he did when he sort of came to the realization that things will happen when they happen. And definitely helped me sort of understand everything and know that to keep going every day and not worry about when it was going to happen. Okay, so you drew a message from him of, of combining optimism with some realism. Yeah, definitely. They were sort of looking at these dates and hoping for them and they weren't happening. So, so I was finding a bit of a fit sense in what he was saying. And was there anything else that helped you during this time? Were you able to talk to someone? So I'm not the sort of person that just goes and talks about how they feel. I don't know if it's, I don't know why. I'm just not very good at it. I find it very much easier to talk to strangers. But the thing I found most uh, helpful was uh, I started a journal. And um, it's something that I, I, it's something you do when you're in the army, when you go to Sandhurst, you have to, you write a journal and they make you do it just so you can reflect and look back. And I didn't quite do it for that. I did it so that every day I wrote how I felt and I put everything down on the piece of page, put the full stop at the end and that was it. That was what, how I was feeling and I was making sure that any negativity or anything that, that was like putting me down was getting written in the book and then closed and that was it. Okay, so you just get it all out onto the page. Yeah, definitely. This is probably as open as I've been with it about everything thus far. May I ask... If something comes to mind of something you you wrote one day that um, that you'd be happy sharing, just a feeling of just not knowing. Like I think it was around about March time, and I'd been given this scary diagnosis, and was still still didn't have still didn't have any guaranteed time of frame or date or even what operation I was going to have. I just remember just writing like key words like anger, like sad not know unknown like these these words and like scribbling them out and almost like writing them down and then scribbling them out and that was for me was putting it down and then like accepting it and then scoring it off as to say like no you 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 were optimistic we're gonna it's gonna happen if that makes sense hmm yeah you're grappling with some deep uncertainty 
Yeah, for sure. I, yeah, it's the most unknown period, I think, hopefully, that I'll ever have to go through again. But then at the same time, I was not trying to project those emotions because I didn't want it to affect the people around me because obviously, as much as I'm going through it, there's people around you going through it as well. And is there anything else? Uh, I mean, sport and exercise has taken a back seat for the moment because of the heart condition. Is there other hobbies that you get into? Music, video games? Yeah, I've, I've been playing a lot, of, uh, a lot of video games, especially because of lockdown. It's the only way I can really communicate with my friends and we all get together and we do the same thing. You know, We all sit there and play these games for, I mean, I'll probably tell you, I play for hours and hours and hours, but it's not really that long. What games are you into? Uh, Warzone, a lot of Warzone. <laughs> so you can't join the army, but you can play the war games. Oh yeah, it's not the same, but uh, yeah, I've still got, I might put a bit of camo on every now and then when I play, get in the, get in the zone. <laughs> and there's no chance of getting injured in these games? Uh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> Which is a plus? Yeah, there's the, it's the, there's the fun and the, the slight bit of adrenaline without the worry. So that shock diagnosis in November 2019 it sets yeah. in train a series of events and medical appointments that lead up to an operation can you talk me through the, the lead up to the operation you had so yeah like I said January I had the full complete professional diagnosis from the the, the heart team in at the QE in Birmingham and then it was I had another appointment in February to see another person and then it was March and it was another person and this whole time in January we were told that I was at high risk and it was all these like triggering words like uh, I can't quite remember some of them a lot of it I blanked out I was lucky to have my parents come with me to every appointment because hmm. if I hadn't had my parents with me nothing would have been taken from the appointments because all I heard was blah 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 blah, blah operation blah blah blah, blah heart. Were you in a a dose of shock or, or experiencing some denial at that stage? There was, was a lot of denial. I remember between November and January telling myself they've got it wrong. They've That's it between wrong. Uh, the Army Medical and your first um, appointment with the, the specialist? Yeah, it was. I know, it's just, they've got it all wrong. It'd be, I'll turn up in January and there'll be, there'll be sorries and apologies. And February I'll be back on, back on the road to Sandhurst. And then, yeah, and it wasn't that at all. It was this all these numbers and averages and for my, for your age and that this is what we'd expect to see in someone three or four times my age and lots of like shock, shock keywords. And then two months later it was COVID and everything slowed down. So what are we? We're March 2020 We're March now. 2020 now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was, I think I had another appointment in April and then everything officially closed if I remember rightly, like it was, we went into lockdown. Now, how are you feeling throughout that period during lockdown and when everything slows up? Scared because I've been told I need this operation done, essentially that's going to elongate my life span. If I don't have this operation done, well, it was never not going to get done. It was always going to get done. It was just a case of when. Mm. And I think for the, the key point for me was being told in January that I'd have this op done within three, three or four months. And then in March, it was, it's going to be another three months. And then I think it finally reached June. And by that point, we'd all thought I would have be, I'd be fixed and on my way to recovery. And it just didn't come round. And it was this, it was this constant feel like, um, thing picking at the back of my head that I should be fixed by now. I'm not fixed by now. Is everything still working? Okay. Yeah. And then it came around to September. And I got my official, my first official operation date. And uh, I went in on the Wednesday afternoon, 
all was fine. I had all my had all my initial tests, all my blood work done. I had a long old meeting with the consultation team and Thursday afternoon, one o'clock, I get a knock at the door. Uh, sorry, Mr. Martin, we've had to cancel your cancel your uh, operation. And I just didn't I couldn't believe it. Heart heart surgery cancelled and it was ultimately because they'd had a COVID spike that night and all the beds had been taken up. Yeah, and obviously in the back of my in the back of my mind I thought back to that passage and I thought, okay, it's not my time. Somebody else needed that needed that bed space more than I needed it, clearly. We'll get another date and we'll come back and we'll do it again. And then the lead up to the actual operation which takes place in October twenty twenty. Yeah. Talk me through that day. That day was completely different to the day before the last time before. Mm. I remember the last time it was all I was so scared. I'd never been that scared before in my life. And I remember like giving the family hugs and obviously because of COVID, no one could come in with me. I was completely by myself. Twenty four, on my own, in the QE, heart surgery. I remember the first time around it was all like hugs and tears and and the second time around it just felt different because I think we'd all accepted the fact that there is a possibility that this is getting called off. Mm. So I spent the night in the hospital on the Wednesday and the Thursday morning, 8 a.m., this man turns up at the end of my bed with another bed. And he's like, come on, you coming with me? And I was like, what? Showtime. Yeah, he was like, yep, this is it, you're getting fixed. Oh, can I ring my parents? Like, I haven't told my parents that. No. And it was just this, like, this mixed bag of emotions of just sheer elation that it was finally getting done. I was finally going to get back on with my life. And then at the same point, it was... I'm going for heart surgery and there's always that feeling of there are these small percentages that things aren't going to go to plan. Nothing's guaranteed. Yeah, and I got in this bed and he carted me off all down the, all these freezing cold corridors and yeah. Alex, was there a wristband or something, uh, a story you told me before we spoke? Um, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I've got this little piece of what I can only describe as like blue string with a the small little heart charm on it mm. and I was given it last summer and it was it was a they call them wish bands and I was given it by my partner Holly my girlfriend and they say that the band breaks when your wish comes true but I remember being the only memory I have from that day and then that whole period of I guess four days was talking to the anaesthetist and he, he goes to me and he's like what's that what's this on your wrist and I was like oh you can cut that off and he was like, oh, what is it? And I, saw, I told him exactly the same. I was like, that's a wish band. And they break when all your wishes come true. And at that point, he looked at me and I said, the only wish I have is to be fixed and to be able to get on with my life. And um, sorry, I'm getting a bit. And um, I remember him looking at me and you could see he was welling up. And I was welling up. And the chief anaesthetist was welling up. And everyone in the room was all looking at each other like, why are we all welling up? And he looked at me and he said, I'm, that band is never coming off. We are going to sort it out so that they keep it on you. And I still have it on even now. And yeah, and that's the only thing. And then I remember the anaesthetist, the female chief anaesthetist, she, she held my hand. And yeah, three days later, I was waking up to these beeps and new people around me. So the uh, the surgeons and everyone in the in the operating room were able to clear their eyes of the tears and, and, yeah, and sort me out. operate well. Um, and then you wake up three days later. What do yeah. you recall of that moment? The only thing I remember saying is talking to my parents from this bed and 
all I kept saying to them was, I feel like a prawn. I feel like a prawn. A prawn? Yeah, a prawn. Yeah, no idea. Like a sea creature, a prawn. Like a, like a prawn, yeah. Like a little curled up prawn. And, because of uh, the way you were lying on the bed. I'm guessing it was the way I was lying on the bed, yeah, all like curled up. And uh, yeah, I feel like a prawn. And that's all I said. They're asking me how I am, and I'm complaining about feeling like a prawn. I've just had this massive surgery. They can't come in and see me or anything. <laughs> Do you remember how they replied when you telling? Me I don't have this? a clue. I think it was a, a relief and laughter. Relief that I was okay and I was back to my usual daft self. It sounds Com- like a necessary bit of comic relief after something very serious. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So um, you're lying there in the bed, feeling like a prawn mm-hmm. with. Um, with a new mechanical valve in your heart. Yeah. Um, how does it feel to have a mechanical valve in your heart? Uh, I remember, like you said, going back to the wet the Saturday afternoon. I remember going getting up and I've got all these these tubes coming out of me and these boxes collecting all these... Or- I won't go into detail, it's not very nice. Hmm. Walking over to the toilet. <laughs> no, this gets no further than that. Sit down. And I could just hear this ticking noise. Hmm. I was like... What's this ticking noise? And I looked down at these machines and I was like, they're not doing anything. And I'm pulling the cord and the nurse comes in and she's like, you okay? And I'm like, can you hear that noise? And she's like, what noise? And I'm like, the ticking. And she's like, oh yeah, what's that? And we were looking for this noise. And then another nurse, they called another nurse in. She comes in. She goes, that's you, Mr. Martin. And I was like, what? She's like, no, no, it's, it's you, Mr. Martin. That's your valve. The first nurse didn't have a clue. She was about as aware as I was. And I was like, pardon? That's, that's me making that noise. And it literally is like a clock ticks. And for like, I reckon up until about, well, I can still hear, I hear it now, but. Are you like, able to put the mic over uh, your chest and see if we can hear it? I'm going to take the headphones off quickly just so I can get you closer. Go for it. There you go. That's your mechanical valve. Yep, that's me. <laughs> that's the first, first real like understanding of the fact that there is actually this little little uh, little metal valve in my in my heart now, opening and closing every heartbeat. And where do you hear it? Do you hear it in your ears, in your mind, in, in your where? Where does it express it's, itself? It's it's weird. I just hear it. I don't know where it is. It's just there. I can't describe where I hear it because obviously it's inside me. But do you feel it as well? Nope, you can't feel it. it. Feels like a normal heartbeat. Can other people hear it? Have you ever been in a cafe yeah. or? Yeah, other people can hear it. The brief period between um, obviously the lockdowns, I had, fa- had briefly family come over and my auntie. She goes, uh, "What's all this about a tick then?" And I remember saying, um, "Yeah, yeah, look, ready, listen." And uh, there it is, it's the ticking. If you were in the room with me, you could hear it if we were all quiet. And um, she sort of like recoiled. It's like, oh, what's that? That's that's the tick. And I was like, yeah, that's it. That's what I hear all the time. And then I've had other friends like, like just like, that's not you. That's 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 you. You're making that noise. And I'm like, nope, that's my valve ticking away every heartbeat. Do you have trouble sleeping? Not anymore. I definitely did at the start. Obviously, there was lots of different emotions going on and at the same time this constant reminder of this tick hmm. constantly reminding me that a, it's there and b it's different i guess hmm. but now you're used to it it's just that noise now yeah it's just that tick it's just there just go to just fall asleep now and how did you feel in the first few weeks after your operation 
yeah, coming home, it was it was very different. Um, I was wasn't quite stable on my feet. I was uh, dozing off on the sofa, and that's not normally me. And you needed help walking around and getting around the house. Yeah, so like more so getting up off the sofa and sitting down, moving about, readjusting myself. And uh, I had this cushion um, and like a I think Toy Story alien. Holly got me this like novelty cushion mm. and anytime I like sneezed or coughed I had to like squeeze the cushion against me because of just the amount of pain that I was in because of the like the what they'd done inside it oh, it was it was can't describe it it was the most painful thing I've ever felt sneezing and coughing after the surgery I bet and Alex you mentioned your girlfriend Holly earlier on and she yeah. was the one that initially got in touch with the, the British Heart Foundation she sent she did, a yeah an email, um, a lovely email actually, suggesting that it might be good for you to, to talk to someone at the BHF um, about what you've been through. Yeah. And in her email to us, she said that the operation showed Alex how valuable life is, but Definitely. how scared he now is of dying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was confidential, but it's out there now. Well, she's told, she, she's told <laughs> yeah, us she's now, told Alex. Us, she's told you now. Yeah, <laughs> you better have a word with her. Yeah, I will do. Um I don't think it's so much a fear of dying. I think it's more a fear of how little guarantee there is for the normal everyday aspects of life. And that, yeah, just nothing, nothing is ever guaranteed. And that, like, you see these programs on TV and you think, oh, that'll never happen to me. I can, I can almost guarantee that'll never happen to me. And then, look, yeah, look at it. 15 months ago, I was told, what was it happening to me? You just take everything for, you take every little win and everything that goes on. You just, I, appreciate, I appreciate everything so much more now, I think. Mm. You mentioned a story to me previously when you were on the couch with Holly watching a TV show and some emotions oh, came yeah. up for you. Yeah, we were. I think I was about three weeks post-surgery now at home, slowly becoming more of a human being. And yeah, there's just things going on on the telly and... 24 hours in any of it if you've ever watched it it's not they don't leave anything to the imagination mm, pretty graphic yeah definitely and it was seeing these machines beeping away and keeping this this poor chap on the tv alive and it just sort of i don't know it wasn't like a, a flashback obviously because i don't remember any of it but it was just that whole um i don't know quite what the, it was that whole thing of nothing being guaranteed again this chap's gone out to work and now he's in A&E. And was it at this moment that you started to feel a bit more vulnerable than you had in the past? Yeah, definitely. I remember, I just think I just broke down. No explanation, just got upset, started crying. And I think previously before that, the only other time that I'd really got like that sort of upset was just, I guess in the weeks after my diagnosis, my first initial diagnosis was just, again, that whole feeling of, having no purpose and nothing being guaranteed, even though you you put all the work in for something, it all gets taken away from you instantly. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it was just, yeah, feeling feeling like I'm not, well, it, I guess in bulletproof and that I do have, I do have emotions, I guess. I know I've got emotions, but you know, you're this 24 year old athlete, I guess. And every, everything you put your mind to, you achieve and you do. And I put my whole heart and soul into something and it was taken off me. Hmm. How differently do you view mental health now compared to oh, I had, beforehand? Beforehand, mental health to me wasn't... Um, well, it's not. I've got that stigma behind it of it's, uh, it's people 
not an excuse. I don't really know. I don't know what to say without being. Were like, you seeing it as, as an, a weakness at times? Yeah, I guess mm. so. It's a, it was a chink in the armor that I didn't have. Like, it wasn't something that was affected me. It was never something that crossed my mind. And yeah, having all this happened, I definitely, definitely don't take it for granted anymore. It's definitely a real thing that can affect anyone at any point. Mm. And I've had conversations since then with friends of mine that I didn't even know had stuff going on. And yeah, and it's definitely, you look back and you think it all makes sense. Like the way I felt, and now I can see it in other people, I guess, and understand it. Mm. With your new mechanical valve and um, the treatment that, that's happened, what can and can't you do now with the, the rest of your life? Uh, so I'm on I take daily medication now. So I take two tablets in the morning, one bisoprazole, so it protects my heartbeat or something like that, one aspirin. Mm-hmm. And then every evening I take what's called warfarin. So I take, it's a different, I take a certain dose every day, which keeps my blood or my INR value between two and three. So that's what I have to make sure I take every day so that my valve continues to work and I continue to live my life. And then with regards to restrictions, I don't have any restrictions as of yet. There's nothing I can't do. I can't eat a few things. I can't eat cranberries and grapefruits mm-hmm. and like little things like that. But do you like cranberries? Nope. <laughs> it wasn't a problem. <laughs> no loss there. It, it wasn't one of those, oh no. And then vitamin K is another one that I have to keep an eye on. So like broccoli, leafy greens, which okay. was a bit of a... But that's good anyway, yeah, Alex. But, that's good for everyone. Yeah, exactly. Um, and what about fitness and sport and exercise? What are you being told by the specialists? Um, so I did a lot of weight training beforehand. So my ability to weight train is completely different. I can't lift as heavy as I was, but they've, they're have they going to look at... Right now, I'm not even worrying about weight training at the moment. No. For me, it's just getting back on my feet, getting out, moving about. Mm-hmm. And then uh, cardio. I'm doing a lot of cardio at the moment, but it's all like slow, steady state, heart rate, protecting your heart rate, protecting because it's the blood pressure that's a big one for me. And you do have some ambitions to run marathons. Oh yeah, and... I've got ambitions to do to do things I was going to do beforehand, hopefully, mm-hmm. but just with a bit more understanding and not, I guess, what's the correct word? A bit more awareness of what I'm going to put my body through once you're um, once I'm fully back, fully recovered, it, yeah. and, and yeah. you've got the clearance um, from the medical specialists before Definitely, you do these yeah. these big exercise um, pursuits. Mm-hmm. Yep. What would have happened if you weren't diagnosed then? With God, no, I don't know, and I don't particularly want to know. I don't think it would have been anything good. Yeah, it would have, uh, obviously, because of the dilation of the ascending aorta, it was only ever going to get worse. It was never going to get, it, it's not something that can fix itself. So, And it was already pretty bad, and it would have only got worse and then failed. And yeah, I guess I failed then. Mm. Is there a part of you that looks back to that army medical in late 2019 and sees that as the moment that, almost corrected things for you and, and as a bit of a, a lifesaver or got your life going in a healthier path? Uh, it definitely saved me because I would have carried on lifting these silly weights and pushing myself to the absolute limit without even thinking about it. It's something that I never really considered would have been a problem. Mm. It's more so it's changed me more so mentally than physically, I think. The physical changes of the ticking and the new scar I've got on my chest. But other than that, it's definitely more mental change that's occurred. And your girlfriend, Holly, also told us in the email she sent to us that uh, you're keen to help other young adults understand more about their heart conditions. Definitely. Can you tell us about that? Uh, Yeah, so the big thing for me was 
during my diagnosis, I remember being handed these leaflets at the QE, and one had a little old man on the front. No, no nothing against the little old man. And one had um, a lady, maybe, maybe you know, late late fifties, mm. and it was like living with your heart condition and um, how you're going to recover post heart surgery. And I'm looking at these books and thinking like. He's he's in his sixties and all he wants to do is be able to climb the stairs again. Mm. She's in her fifties and she's happy that she can now walk the dog without getting out of breath. And I remember looking at these books and thinking, like, these these need to change. These mm. these aren't something that should be given to someone twenty four prime of their life. They didn't do anything for me other than so not not upset me, but sort of gave me this little feeling like. Why am I, it just brought back these like, why am I like this? These books, these books shouldn't be given to someone like me who's already struggling with his identity and his purpose. So yeah, I think that's the biggest thing that I want to change is the understanding that, yes, you need to inform someone like me, but it's the way I get, the way you inform me. Mm. Even if it's one person that I get to change, I get to make a difference for, then I'll be, I'll be more than happy and I can can live my life with my valve knowing that I've made put a smile on one person's face mm. what would you say to other young adults out there who might be listening to this and be feeling as low as you were feeling that day when you were diagnosed uh, it's okay uh, to feel like that it's not it's not a weakness you're allowed to be upset it's the start of your new your new journey with the greater understanding of every aspect of life and your own life is what I'd say and some people might recover to the extent that you've recovered and, and some people might not recover as well. But that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. You're allowed to, everyone's different. Everyone has their own things going on and it's good to be different. You know, people don't, people aren't recognized for being the same. <laughs> mm -hmm. Tell me about the support family and friends have been through all this. Oh, I wouldn't have done it. I couldn't have done it without them. I wouldn't, I don't, I don't know what would have happened without them. Like having my family there and Holly and, I got a close group of friends that, I mean, I don't think I talk, I don't think I've mentioned it before, but I received a uh, about a ten-minute-long video, the first time I was supposed to get in, in September, of all these people just saying like, like "Hi Al, uh, everything's going to be fine. Like, can't wait to see you after it all." And it's all these people that, yeah, I knew that I was close with, but you just don't think, not that anyone anyone cares, but anyone like they've got their own stuff going on. You know, why are they sitting there? taking time out of their day to say good luck and that everyone like they ever like, they love me and that they they can't wait to see me when this is all over and it was one of the most heartwarming like I mean I just broke down I remember breakfast getting upset and then seeing the different face and just being like just different and like happy and honestly it was one of the most like amazing things that to come out of this whole thing was just mm. the understanding that there are it is okay to ask people for help and you are allowed to not be okay, and the people are around you that do care. Mm. And tell me about the support that your girlfriend Holly's shown through all this. Oh yeah, she's been amazing. She took my, both her and my mum took time off work. They they helped me through everything. They were there. Like I couldn't even touch my toes, so they were putting my socks on for me. Like I was <laughs> twenty four years old, having my twenty four year old girlfriend, and my mum still put my socks on for me. <laughs> True love, Alex. Yeah, it really was. Yeah, like cut my toenails, like horrible little things like that. Like, I think my sister cut my toenails. It's like, why are these people doing this for me? Like, I'm 24. I shouldn't have my sister, my 22-year-old sister cut my toenails. And I had all these people, like my, my family, my father, my mum, my sister, Holly, who moved in with us 
for this period. She she came in early to isolate and do it all properly. And yeah, I don't I think it wouldn't have been the same. It definitely wouldn't have been the same without them. Probably wouldn't be as happy and as upbeat and as far on in my recovery as I am now. I think we're in week sixteen now, and I'm I'm training again. I'm running. I'm out mm-hmm. doing like cardio, like impact stuff. Like it's all. I'm a heck of a lot further now than when I thought I thought I would be. And you've got the all clear from your specialist to be doing yeah, all this. Yeah, I'm all clear, yeah. Yeah, good to hear. <laughs> Always make sure you do have the all clear, though. Good to hear. We are a medical charity, there, yeah. so we need to make sure that you've Definitely. got the all clear from the specialist uh, mm-hmm. after such a major operation. Yeah. Um, I understand there's an Instagram post that you put up recently. Uh, yeah, so I, I posted exactly a year from the day of finding out uh, two pictures, one of uh, prior to everything going on, and it's a picture of me just staring out into the ocean. And I, if I recall to that day, Holly had taken me out and she, she sat me in the car and she was like, we're going, we're going out, we're going out. And I think I sat on the beach literally by myself for half an hour. I did, I, Holly took the picture of me. I didn't realize it was being taken. I can't, I don't remember if I got upset, but I remember feeling like hundreds of different emotions, like not feeling like I had a purpose and not knowing what was going on and, why me was the biggest one for me. Like I'm never going to do what I want to do. The second one is is just it's a raw picture of me in. I think it was yeah that that day, the 14th of November, mm. 2020, exactly a year from finding everything out. It's just a picture of me owning the new Scarlet I've got and the slightly fluffier physique hmm. I had at the time. Yeah, and it's just this big old scar and me. And it's not there's no it's not beating around the bush. It's literally a picture of exactly what I look like now Mm. and what do you write in that post I said about the fact that exactly a year from when it was posted everything changed for me told that my heart wasn't wasn't functioning wasn't it wasn't working and then I just summed up everything really saying that that I'd finally started to feel human again if I could take anything from that year it would be my mental maturity my maturity towards other people and then yeah and then I guess just to, say, just to say thank you for everyone that had been there for me over the year and mm. that all these people, I'm sure will, I will be friends with these people forever. Yeah, it was really, it was not, I didn't do it for like likes or the gratification. It was more definitely more for me mm. just to sum up that year and put a full stop in it, I guess. Yeah. And now you're 25. Yep. You're not going to be joining the army. <laughs> no. <laughs> what does the future hold for Alex? Uh, at the moment, continue doing what I'm doing, continue working at, with Ambre, this company that I'm at, and then it's the fire service stuff, I think, Bill. Uh, mm-hmm. I've looked into it, and it's something that I can still do, even though I'm different. I've got all these I've got these medications that I take, but if I pass the fitness tests, the fire service will take me on, and that's definitely something that I want to do. So once you get the all clear from the specialist and the fire service, that's, uh, yeah. that's where you that's ultimately want to end up? Yeah, definitely, 100%. Alex, well, thank you very much for talking with us here and um, we wish you all the very best no thank you Bill thank you for giving me the platform since we spoke Alex has joined the BHF's One Beat group for 18 to 30 year olds this group brings together younger people with heart and circulatory conditions it's a place to talk with others who might be going through something similar to you and it's a forum to learn more about your health while getting updates on the BHF's latest research if you too would like to join go to bhf.org.uk slash onebeat If you've got any questions about your heart or circulatory health, call the BHF's Heart Helpline to speak with a nurse between 9 to 5 on Monday to Fridays 
on 0300 330 3311 or email hardhelpline at bhf.org.uk. See you next time on The Ticker Tapes.